Hi, this is Toka US Brand Manager Ian Harvey. We got a treat for you today. Um, I'm here with four Olympians. Ida Sargent is a 2014 and 2018 Olympian. Andy Newell is a 2006, 2010, 2014, and 2018 Olympian. Caitlin Gregg is a 2010 Olympian, and I should also mention 2015 Bronze World Championship medal winner. John Bauer is a 1992-98 and 2002 Olympian. And I'm a 1992 Olympian and also was at the 1994 Olympics as a ski tech working for a ski company and at the 2002 Olympics working for a wax company. So as a U.S. Nordic ski podcast, I'm expecting our followers to be very familiar with these names and faces who represent some of the most celebrated Nordic Olympians. The idea behind this podcast today, this episode, is to talk about how the Olympics are different from a World Cup event and to do so in a discussion format. I will steer, steer the discussion by asking questions. Hopefully you find this interesting. And I, I know there's gonna be some good anecdotes and stories. So first off, I wanna say is thank you very much to the four of you for being with me today. I hope this is gonna be fun for you as well. Yeah, thanks Ian. Thanks, happy to be here Ian. Okay. So the first question, making an Olympic team is special. You're an Olympian for life. When you made your first Olympic team, how did it feel? What did it mean to you? Well, just I'll, I'll get her going, but I had made the team off of discretion and I had good uh, fall World Cups and, uh, you know, had like all athletes at this level, you push yourself to the brink and and that, but once I had made the team, they found out the news that I had was uh, selected off of uh, earlier results. Found that out in Bawabic, Minnesota. I mean, I, I, uh, it was, it was. That's like the super cool moment right then and there. You're like, oh, did it? You know, like it wasn't sure <clears throat> how it would go. So, you know, then you have about a month, and then you you get over to the Olympics and that's where all the fun begins. Like it's everything is just, you're just, your eyes are this big. Um, I had made the world championships, uh, my first big event the year before the senior worlds. And then I was a, you know, world junior participant, but I mean, just you're going over there and this is something that, you know, you're relatively young and you just work for your whole life. And no matter how you do, it's so cool, you know, for of course sure. you want to do great, but it's just a thrill. Thank you. Someone else want to talk about what they felt, what it felt like to become an Olympian for the first time? Yeah, I can, um, I can, I can talk. I, uh, we, uh, I found out, um, I guess I hadn't gotten the official call, but there was a points list. They were going off of fist points at the time and the latest fist points list came out. And I remember looking at the, like pulling up the list when it, came out that morning and looking at where I ranked and I knew uh, top five women were probably going to be selected to the 2010 Olympic team. And, uh, and I saw my name was number two on the list and I got pretty excited and I was so excited. It was the first and only time it ever happened that I was actually at Brian's house with his family and I ran over and he was sitting in the living room and I jumped on what I thought was his lap and gave him a big hug. And it turned out to be his twin brother, Chad. And uh, both uh, Brian and, and Chad's wife, Alita, kind of gave me a look, uh, gave us a look like, whoa, what's going on here? And uh, that was pretty embarrassing. But um, it kind of that kind of epitomizes the, uh, the the wave of excitement and how you're sort of like not really thinking clearly and straight. And yeah, anyway, so I thought that was pretty funny. But then, um, yeah, and then I got the official. 
remember getting the official call. I was at a hotel room in Spokane, Washington, and uh, it was Pete Vorden, and then I accidentally hung up on him and then had to wait for what felt like an eternity for him to call back and finally tell me the news. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun how those things get, uh, yeah, are kind of always ingrained in your mind. You don't really forget that that moment, which is pretty cool. Caitlin, your um, connection isn't very good, but it was, thanks for tell, sharing that. <laughs> what about Andy and Ida? You guys got something to share? Yeah, sure. Um, I can jump in. I, I think what makes the Olympics so unique is that everyone has this idea of the Olympics in their head from when they're really little. And part of that goes hand in hand with the fact that the Olympics are so heavily televised and publicized that as a six, seven, eight year old skier, you know what the Olympics are, even before you know what the World Cup is, even before you know what Holman Cohen is or Draman or World Championships. Um, and so you have that in your mind from the age of a you know, when you first step on skis, this idea of being an Olympian is kind of seated in you. Uh, and then when it actually comes true, it's, it's an incredible feeling. And I think that's what makes probably what makes the Olympics so appealing to watch for everyone at home too, is the fact that anytime you see somebody compete in an event or achieve something that they've been trying to go after since they were really little, it's pretty cool to watch. And that's, I think what makes it so cool when you see somebody finish an event at the Olympics, cross the finish line, whatever it is, and you see them that are, they're just so ecstatic. And just the fact that they won a medal is just like a dream come true. That's what people like to watch. And that's what makes the Olympics pretty cool is that kind of anticipation and the fact that it's been in everyone's mind for so long. Yeah. And, and not only for others watching, but for the person who made the Olympic team achieving that lifelong romantic, idealistic goal, it's very different from World Cup. What do you have to say, Ida? Um, yeah, I think I can echo all of those. Um, and oftentimes the Olympic qualification process isn't just like a, at least now it's not a one and done. And so it's usually, you know, before the, that official announcements made kind of from the accumulation of world cup points over the season. Um, but like John said, it's really when the, when you get to the Olympics that I think that's when it, for me, when it really set in, um, and that, um, excitement there to be there with my teammates. Um, so seeing, um, this year's Olympic team has so many new, um, newbies on it. Um, first time Olympians. So I'm just really excited for the adventure that they're going to be going, um, going through these next few weeks as they arrive in Beijing and, um, get to experience the whole, the whole process. Cause, um, yeah, it's, it's once you arrive that, that, that magic really sets in and, um, it became more real for me. Cool. So one crazy thing about the Olympics that I think people have no idea about that have never been on an Olympic team is the clothing issue. Uh, there's so much clothing and so much stuff that we all receive. Can you can you all maybe try to give an idea of what the scene is like? Because it's pretty unique, at least it was for me. Who would like to start? I'll go because I don't care. But um, so you go over with one duffel bag and you come back with four. Okay. And you got your skis and things like that. So yeah, it's a pretty wild experience. Some Olympics were different for me. I'm blessed that I was able to do three. I missed the Nagano. I missed the uh, Little Hammer one in 94. But um, the basically, you're, it's like you're at a four star. I mean, you're getting fitted for everything. They will alter your clothes. They will alter your jacket. You get 
um, three pairs of shoes and, and a, a belt that you will keep the rest of your life, at least for the men, um, you know, a nice leather belt, an Olympic ring, which, you know, it's, it's the sheer amount of like, holy cow, this is like, it keeps coming. You've got to go like in this big maze and get to these various stations. And uh, so the companies, uh, comp I, I guess there are just a few companies that uh, supply each Olympic team. Um, it would be Roots Clothing in 2002. It was, I don't remember the name of the company, the outfitter, um, in 98 but in 2002 in 1992 it was uh, polo ralph loren which was pretty amazing and uh some of these things you wear with pride but other as you as you um all know these are you know for us we don't just wear these everywhere because we're kind of humble people we're shy you know you don't want to draw attention to yourself so you wear it heavily and then it kind of goes into a closet right you know well, for the record, I've gave every single thing away except for one jacket within one year. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have any belts or rings or watches or whatever. Those are all I'm with John. I, I held on to the belts. I've gotten rid of almost anything. And like you said, it's like at first you think it's amazing because you fill these shopping bags full of clothes. And it's so cool for a young Olympian. I'm sure, especially this year's squad, a lot of newbies to the to the uh, World Cup and to the Olympics are going to be having such a ball going through there. Um, but yeah, I held onto the belts and I try to keep maybe one jacket and I keep the race suits. And other than that, you tend to get rid of it after a while. Um, but it is such a crazy thing. Cause you hear stories about it as an athlete, um, about, you know, from the older athletes who have gone to the Olympics and you hear about the uniforming process. So I think in my first two years, I was just blown away by it. And then by my second or third Olympics, I was, and I don't want to sound jaded here either, but it was like, it, it became a little bit excessive and you kind of realize the excess of the olympics um which those who that know me well know that i have a strong opinion when it comes to the excess of the olympics and i have a strong opinion when it comes to the way the ioc and the usoc are run um and that's probably a whole different topic for me to get ranting on but by the time you go to your third or fourth olympics you realize you know nike love ralph Lauren. i'm not getting a dime from them so why am i wearing their clothes around and here now you have a shopping bag full of it. And it's like, I think you, you turn, you start to kind of read the writing on the wall by the time you get to your um, later Olympics. But as a young guy, man, it's a really cool thing to get all that stuff. Um, and yeah, you, you tend to wear it around the village with a lot of pride, which is great. And at the end of the day, that's what the Olympics, I think are, that's to me what the Olympic spirit is really about is that country pride in the village is a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, you, see, you see people you ha haven't even like oh wow there's my teammate you know like this is great and then you start bringing up a conversation so it's a lot of um yeah a lot of camaraderie because of the uniforming because of the coding and all of that sure. yeah it's, it's sure. pretty neat Kaylin and i do you guys have some something to say about the equipment issue or clothing issue crazy scene yeah i mean hopefully my connection is good here it's fun it's fun to, i can hear you guys pretty well uh i just i would echo exactly what uh what john and andy said um and then I, again like uh, you, you're just kind of blown away by like how how serious they take like the the fit of the outfits especially the opening ceremonies kits like that's that's a pretty big deal and the reveal of that and you know, sometimes you kind of have mixed bag. Sometimes it's really cool stuff. And sometimes it's like, whoa, I will never wear this again. But you kind of, <laughs> you kind of have some, you kind of have some camaraderie in the fact that it's like maybe not 
like it looks a little funky or whatever and you're all out there wearing it and you're kind of like oh, it's kind of cool and um yeah I think it's kind of a it's a for sure it's a cool part of uh I've kind of again like they just said that that team pride you know you kind of wear your colors and you kind of wear your flag and you you represent which is cool Thank it's all about you. those tailored sweatpants these days <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah, the are uh, in Sochi. We had the ugliest sweaters for um, opening ceremonies, and I think I when I saw a picture of them, even before going through um, the processing, it was like I was like, "Oh my god, that thing is horrible!" But um, as soon as I was wearing it in my first opening ceremonies, that's one of the pieces that I've actually held on to. Huh. Cool. Yeah, I, um, like on our opening ceremonies in '92, we had hats with brims and big, big trench coats and dress pants and leather shoes. Uh, those were all gone before the Olympics were over for me. <laughs> I didn't want to be carrying all that crap around until April. But um, it was neat going to the opening ceremonies and wearing all that stuff and feeling like part of something much, much bigger and, and all that. I, I also had rings, like you all, rings, fancy belts and tons and tons of pins and hats and watches and and again, it feels a little weird, but it's very excessive, that's for sure. So one thing I think is the most unique about the Olympics from an athlete's perspective is the Olympic Village and the cafeteria within the Olympic Village. Of course, the villages are different depending on which Olympics. Some of them you'll have bobsled athletes and athlete, uh, let's say alpine skiers and, and whatnot in your village. And other times you just have the Nordic athletes. But eating in the cafeteria and walking around the village, I think, is, a, is quite a unique experience and very different from any World Cup experience. Depending on which games you're in and what athletes, what athletes your village included, you can see athletes from other non-ski sports and from other countries. The food options were also great and crazy sometimes. You know, some very nutritious food. And you also had McDonald's and Pizza Hut, perhaps. Can you tell us an anecdote and your thoughts about the cafeteria in the Olympic Village? Anybody? I can go. Yeah, Jump please. In there. Um, sure. It is. Yeah, it's wild uh, going into that cafeteria. And I think anyone can relate to this, having been in any type of public school or, you know, college cafeteria, the, the social awkwardness that goes in with eating in a mass, you know, cafeteria like that. Um, so it's kind of funny, you know, it's no different at the Olympics. You have these, you, not only do you have all the individuals from Team USA, but in some of the big villages, you have multiple countries, multiple sports. It's a, it's a massive event. And so you walk in there and you're, you know, where are you going to sit? Who are you going to talk to? All that kind of stuff. Um, but I would say that the Nordic skiers are probably one of the more, believe it or not, one of the more social groups at the Olympics. And I think the reason why is because we are used to traveling with the men's and women's team and the Nordic squads are also pretty big. Um, and our world cup is pretty tight knit. So like we have friends, you know, from Norway, Sweden, Russia, wherever, and, and a lot of friendly faces and the Nordic squads are huge. Like our numbers are much bigger than that of a snowboard team or a bobsled team or whatever. Um, so we tend to congregate more, I think in the dining areas and, and kind of socialize with the other countries a little bit more maybe than some other sports. And then, so I found over the years that it's been cool to kind of include some of the other friends, whether I have snowboarders or, you know, skaters or whoever that's at the Olympics, try to include them into the, some of those social bubbles and try to sit down with some other folks from time to time. Yes, yeah, so I had a different experience, like um, the first, uh, the 
the Albertville Olympic Games were away from the town of Albertville. So we were in a village of Lace Z. Um, and so just like Soldier Hollow, where we were uh, in Midway, we were kind of, this is the, this is the, the Nordic skiers were basically in the village. Now Nagano had, uh, we were in the Olympic village and then we commuted every day to go skiing. So we, in the, in the Nagano games, we saw everybody just like you were talking about Andy, but in the other villages, we just kind of had, um, so, I mean, it was super wild in terms of the cafeteria, just the massive amount of food in Nagano when you got everybody together and everybody's, you know, hungry and cutting in my, well, I mean, I'm not gonna, you know how the Europeans are when they're a little bit less polite and patient, you know? I mean, that's a joke, we all know that. Euro cutting and all that stuff. I'm just gonna say it, but that's that's part of it. And during, you know, some during events, there'd be stories about the lines. It'll be about like, who's eating what. But my, my favorite story is uh, Vladimir Smirnov in the Nagano games. Um, he managed a bronze medal well, he managed the bronze medal in the 15K, but he basically didn't have a good Olympics. So he finished the 50K skate, which was not designed for him. It was like super soft. So he's, he's um, I see him at the end of the race. He's still in his uniform and he's sitting down and having like two Big Macs and all the fries he could fit on his plate. I mean, we're talking like he was just hunkering down and it was just hilarious to see this guy. Um, eat that way. I thought it was <laughs> classic. And I tell everybody, you know, like, oh, yeah, we all eat McDonald's, you know, here or there, some more than others, because sometimes you just got to eat. And, you know, to me, that was like a classic cafeteria story. <laughs> Thank you. What about you, Caitlin and I? Do you guys get some anecdotes, some funny stories, or somebody very interesting that you sat with? Or yeah, saw? for for me, for sure. I, um, I, it was my first, uh, Olympics was only, I think I'd only done maybe three World Cup races before that. So, and I hadn't really spent much time, um, had never been to like a, like World Cup venue in Europe or anything like that. So it was really my first time really interacting kind of like Andy said with athletes from different teams or having any exposure. And I didn't have any friends on other teams or anything. So I was pretty new to the scene. And I distinctly remember one day sitting down and I wasn't competing that day. And so they're really cool. This is in Vancouver. They had some TV screens, like monitors that you could watch like other competitions happening. And so I can't remember which event it was. It might've even been a biathlon event, but I just sat down and I was there early and there was no one else in the cafeteria at that time. And then an athlete came and sat down right next to me. And we were like the two Nordic skiers there sitting, watching whatever was on the screen. And I looked over and it was Petter Nortug. And at that time, you, I was like, oh, my God, you know, he was kind of a huge, I mean, he's a huge star in general. But at that time, he was really, really coming on the scene. And I was just like, oh, this is amazing. And I just remember sitting there and I obviously had nothing interesting to say or bring up. I was way too starstruck. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was that was pretty cool for me anyway. At that point, I was like, wow, this is this is legit. This is this is what the Olympics are about. And mm -hmm. anyway, kind of to Andy's Andy's point, like he was, you know, he he probably said hello and was very friendly. And yeah, that was kind of a cool, cool moment for me. Cool. But you, Ida? Um, in Sochi, it was actually, we were at this one village that was just biathlon and Nordic. So because of that, it didn't feel that much different than being like at any other world cup where you're kind of in a, in a bigger hotel with most of the teams. Um, like we often did at many world cups, but in Pyeongchang, that one was really fun because we were in a bigger village with a lot more other sports uh, 
And I, I thought it was really fun to, to meet other Americans. I think that was probably maybe where my comfort zone um, fell with, felt um, comfortable sitting with other, other Americans, recognizing those uniforms um, and striking up conversations with them. So it was great to, to meet these people that you're teammates with, but uh, barely know. Cool. Yeah, that, that's a fun thing. So security at the Olympic Games is something that is rare at World Cups, the way, like at the Olympics. Um, do you have any Olympic Village security experiences that might be fun to relate? Why don't we start with Ida and Caitlin? Um, I don't remember there being anything too crazy, though. I do remember in Sochi when we were on buses to be because we were in this um, mountain village. I think this was the only one that really stuck out to me that was we got bussed down to um, the opening ceremonies in the main Olympic village and they would duct tape the doors shut so that we were duct taped into the buses for like the, the security once the once the bus was like sealed and then you just watch them putting duct tape on the doors and I'm not really sure what that would have done but we were we were safely um, duct taped into our buses. What about you Caitlin? Yeah I definitely remember um, definitely remember we didn't get duct tape but they were always as we'd enter the athlete village from the venue. I can't remember if we, they did this at the venue when we'd come from the athlete village, but getting back to the athlete village, I definitely remember them walking around the bus with mirrors and like really being pretty thorough with like checking out what the bus situation was. Maybe that's, maybe they kind of increased security more with the duct tape after that. Um, but I definitely remember hearing that they were gonna be like, um, like people in the woods with guns, kind of like, like patrolling, um, like in the forest in Vancouver. and sure enough one day on a warm-up I definitely saw some guys kind of like hoofing around in the woods with some pretty big guns and I don't know they were just keeping an eye on things and uh there was some rumor too about some um I don't know Andy maybe you remember this there was like a blimp up in the air do you remember that at all yeah and I don't remember what that was doing there was some some sort of security with a blimp at, at the Vancouver games too so yeah there definitely was an air security but yeah you, you, feel, you feel safe and yeah it was yeah, it's kind of fun to, to see those little differences from everyday environment, I guess. Cool. Andy and John, you guys got anything to say? Well, uh, so the, uh, the 2002 games uh, had, uh, you know, followed in the footsteps of the 9-11 attack. So um, there was, uh, you know, up until then, the other Olympics, there were no metal detectors. You just, you just walked on through, it was just so casual. Well, you know, as expected in 2002, there were the metal detectors and we everybody's got to go in there, you know, no matter. John, you were at 92. We had metal detectors in 92. We did? Yeah, we did. You were there. Well, yeah, I guess I did. I did, um, they did I all the luggage as well as all of the people. Every time you went in and out, you went through a metal detector. Okay. And, and I guess I, it too. I forgot that. But I guess what the, the salient point is that at the 2002 games, there were report. You could just see the planes flying up above the soldier hollow and you heard reports of oh yeah there's sharpshooters up in the up in the mountains and so that was you know definitely a very interesting time because it was like well at least we have the olympics and it stands to reason that that you know that but to me the the 2002 games was definitely the most secure yeah you know i got a story, about 2002. Uh, what about you? I get a story to tell you in a second about okay how secure it was what about you andy yeah i mean one thing I noticed over the course of the four Olympics was just how much security kind of increased, uh, kind of like what John was talking about. And 
man, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like this time around. But um, yeah, for those that don't know, it's like full on airport security to get in and out of the venue and back into the Olympic Village. And uh, I can remember my first Olympics, that was a little bit of a <clears throat> surprise for sure. Um, but even in 06, I remember things being a lot more relaxed than they were, for example, in 2018. And I can remember heading out. For those that might remember, uh, this is a fun little story. Uh, this was back when Bodie Miller was on the scene, big time, back in 06. And you might remember he was traveling around Europe in a bus. That was like his thing, Team Bodie bus. Yeah. And he decided to park his bus next to the Olympic Village, which, which caused a lot of controversy. So he parked <laughs> his big bus next to the village and refused to stay in the village, which caused a, a lot of uproar. But anyhow, Chris Cook and I were, were living on the side of the village. There happened to be an exit um, right off that side of the village with metal detectors. And we could get right to Bodie's bus, happened to be parked right there. And we know him a little bit. So we would stop by Bodie's bus from time to time, say hi. And I knew his agent from Friends of Friends. Uh, and so we'd stop in. And after our races were over, we stopped in and had a drink or two with Bodie and his bus. And I can remember, um, let's just say his name was Buk Lodensteiner, uh, <laughs> was with us too that night. And uh, after having a couple of drinks with Bodie, we tried to go back through the metal detectors. But I don't know if people know this, but Olympic villages are dry. You can't bring any alcohol into the village. And so instead of trying to sneak the alcohol in, we tried to just lay, we just laid ourselves on the metal detectors and tried to go through on the belts to distract the, uh, the Italian security guards. And I think it worked. So I got a kind of a funny one from 2002 from a, from a supplier's point of view. I was, I had a van that I was driving every day into the, into the Olympic compound. And every day I was bringing in huge boxes and whole, you know, tons of supplies because the teams were buying it like crazy. And I was getting requests for this and that specifically. So and I was driving every day with a, with a bunch of crap in my van that I was unloading then in our container. And the next day I'd come with more crap because people were buying it, you know. And I had to go through security with my van. And it was really funny because they would have you pop the, the, pop the hood, look through the entire hood of the van. They'd go with the mirrors underneath the bottom of the van. They'd I'd open up all the doors. They'd check all of the IDs. And we'd go outside and they'd pat us down and like the full deal, except inside the van, which was full of boxes of stuff. If a box was taped shut, they'd say, oh, that one's sealed. It's good to go. <laughs> <laughs> and if it wasn't taped shut, then they'd open up and like rummage through it. But and if it was a bag, they'd rummage through it. But any any cardboard boxes, which, you know, all the wax and the stuff that was in them, if it was taped shut, they'd say, okay, that one's good. It's sealed. It's good to go. <laughs> which I thought was really funny because, you know, that wasn't very secure at all. <laughs> So that's kind of a funny story about Olympic security. So the, the opening ceremonies are, are uh, kind of iconic. Sometimes Nordic athletes especially don't participate in them. So that's the first question is, did you participate in the opening ceremonies? Because you might have had a, a big event the next day and you don't want to be in the cold for that long or something. And do you, did you, uh, do you have anything interesting to say about the opening ceremonies? Why don't we start with the ladies again? I think I'd anticipated the Olympics, the opening ceremonies for a long time. Um, just kind of having that be that, that culminating dream moment of making the Olympics. Um, so I had this big like idea of what it was going to be like. Um, and then the actual experience blew that out of the water. It was, it was so cool. The, the energy and the, the sound, the lights, um, just being there, walking through with all of the, the athletes. It was, it was something that I'll never forget. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really powerful. Um, 
really there is special. something to be said. There is something to be said too about entering the stadium with your team. You know, that's mm -hmm. pretty powerful. That's a, that is a cool moment for sure. I like that. Thank yeah, you. I I agree with uh, exactly what Ida says. It kind of blows away what you you kind of envision it to be. It's 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 pretty amazing spectacle. And um, I think to your point, you know, there definitely was some talk about it's a it's a long because for us we had to drive from Vancouver down or from Whistler down to Vancouver, and there's like again more security and a lot of kind of staging and waiting and um, but it's it's worth what's that speeches. Yeah, yeah, but it's worth it. And uh, yeah, I think I, I was fortunate from what I remember. Um, maybe I wasn't in the first event or I had, we had a couple of days. Um, one thing that's unique for Nordic athletes is like for some different sports, you know, they have maybe just one event and it's like one day and they're either or kind of at the end or in the middle or, you know, they kind of have that. But for the Nordic athletes or cross country um in Baffin especially we kind of have our events throughout the olympics and so definitely people who have events maybe the next day which for sure happens the open ceremonies happen things start off or even towards the end i know listening to uh, they always have the men's 50k as the last event and i know getting to the closing ceremonies is like something else for sure so yeah anyway i was i was pretty happy that i went and that was a lot of fun sure and ninja and okay, well, yeah, um, it's electrifying the first Olympics, you know, it's first time for everything and it blows it out of the water, you know, it's just, it's super cool to go in as a team and uh, the US is under, you know, we're, uh, it's a, you know, we're a big, we've got a lot of members in our delegation and uh, there's a, it's, it's pretty neat um, to, to be part of that, you're You've been spending the whole, um, I didn't race the first uh, race in Albertville, the first Olympics. And uh, so I had some time, um, but we're down in, we're down in the, uh, in Albertville getting ready. And it's all this anticipatory, you know, four hour getting ready. Everybody's uh, taking photos and, you know, it's, it's a big buildup and um, it's tiring, no doubt about it, but you know, um, if I wasn't racing, I always went to the openings. I don't remember what I, what every single Olympics was what was like, but we're probably going to talk about the closings too later. But the openings was pretty, you know, it's that's a uh, aside from the outfitting and this, you know, uh, it's starting to be the real thing. Thank you. What about you, Andy? Yeah, um, a lot of people don't know this, but. Ida brought this up. Um, Nordic skiing, the 50K is like the only event, I believe, that actually hosts the medal ceremony at the closing ceremonies. So the medal event, like the podium ceremony for the 50K, which is really cool. You know, I think that's probably what makes it one of the most prestigious events to win is that you get to have your medal hung around your neck at the closing ceremonies. That's pretty cool. Um, but I think I was kind of two for two. I think I walked in two of the four Olympics and, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not so much the ceremony itself that is super tiring. It's kind of the lead up and you have to bust somewhere and then it's a lot of time on your feet standing in line. Um, but it is really cool to be there with the entire U.S. team. You realize how big the team is because you might be in a couple different villages and you all come together for the opening ceremonies. Um, so it's really cool. You know, you have people like everyone's like, oh, let's go talk to Sean White so we can get on TV when you walk through and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and uh actually nowadays they have this option 
to walk and not actually be in the ceremony. So a lot of Nordic athletes do that. I, I think I did that in, um, in Korea where you actually bust down to the event, you stand in line and you walk through the stadium, but instead of going up into the stands to watch the actual ceremony, you duck out a back door and you're already on a bus back, back to the hotel or back to the village. Um, so you actually just walk in and then you don't actually view this, view the ceremony. And so I did that, I think twice as well. Um, just to cut down with, I was usually the sprints usually pretty early on. It's often the first race. And so I was, um, yeah, I would get out of there pretty quick. So I had a kind of an interesting experience that I want to share in case you guys want to share something. And that is, uh, before the opening ceremonies, you get all those pins, you get bags and bags of pins and, you know, Olympic sponsors, everything. And there's some really cool pins and it's interesting. And I think it was when we left the stadium after the opening ceremonies, I believe it was, we were walking along to the bus and, you know, we were walking past thousands and thousands of people and they were all yelling for pins and me being the dumbass I was, I was throwing handfuls of pins to all the people in the crowd and along the side of the road. And by the time I got to the bus, I had like two pins left and someone's like, Hey, you got one of the USA da -da -da pins. And I was like, uh, uh, and he goes, I'll give you a 700 bucks if you do. And I'm like, holy crap <laughs> and i gave away thousands of dollars with the pins just chucking them at people and i had no idea how big a deal that was did anyone else have kind of a weird experience like that well, it's a good story but i no i didn't but yeah um yeah it's people go nuts over the the japanese my experience they were they coveted a lot of the um it for what it was they just coveted a lot of the, the they they were buying our Outfitting uniforms, uh, pins, you know, this this went crazy. Um, but it's, a, yeah, pin collecting is not kind of my thing. I've got, you know, they just sit you know, around, but it is, it is neat because that would be, it'd be something easy to trade. And that's just part of the human interaction and part of the Olympics, you know? Yeah. And you got this. Reminds me of Paul Robbins. Yes, you must, Ian, and you guys must remember uh, Paul Robbins, of course. the legendary uh, media um guy for nordic for the u.s ski team and whenever i think of pins i think of paul robbins because he had the best pin collection on his hat ever you know yeah he's a big pin guy kayla Knight, do you guys get anything to say about pins before we move on okay so media interest in cross-country ski athletes is way up at the olympics compared to normal obviously do you guys have any stories to relate about that why don't we start with the ladies again I guess I kind of thought it was fun. Um, it was like nice to have a little more attention and interest and um, try not to let that build to too much pressure, but just to um, enjoy telling our story and like the story of our team um, making it to the Olympics and um, our goals for the Olympics. And I think keeping it in perspective that, yeah, everybody's going there to, to win and to medal, but realizing there's only three medals um, for each race. So keeping the pressure low, but enjoying being able to, to tell our story um, and share with people that this is something we're doing all the time, not just once every four years. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, and on the other end of the, of kind of that, that um, timeline, I was there, I guess it was Keegan's maybe even third Olympics by then. Cause was she 2002, 2000 and 2006? Yeah. Gosh, yeah. So she was like, she was definitely, you know, familiar. And for the rest of us, it was all of her first Olympics. And that was um, myself, Holly Brooks, 
Morgan Aratola and Liz Stevens. And so I felt like, um, you know, for uh, fortunately, you know, Keegan for sure had the media attention because she was already, you know, podiuming at World Cups and was, you know, kind of on, on the scene uh, as a regular. But for the rest of us, we were pretty young and pretty new. And um, and so, yeah, we, we, we didn't have that same um, pressure to uh, to medal. We were just, we we're pretty psyched just to be there. So it's, um, yeah, it's been amazing to watch kind of that transition and that shift to where, you know, everyone now, it feels like, you know, especially in Pyeongchang, that there was a potential for any number of uh, events to have a medal, which is, is really cool, but obviously is a, is a new, new, uh, new side, uh, side thing to have to, yeah, manage for sure the pressure. Thanks. John and Andy, you guys got anything to say on this? Well, yeah, I mean, we get, you know, at the Olympics, you get this, um, people probably know, you get media training, you get media training throughout the year, but a lot of the, um, a lot of the interviews you have aren't, aren't always about skiing or your sport. They're pol political. So you have to go and, you know, there's a, you have to be aware of uh, that it could go that way. Um, yeah. it was particularly that way the year before the my first Olympics and at the world university games when they were, you know, Iraq war or whatnot and, um, or invasion. And um, so through the years, I, um, this, you know, the U.S. ski team has certainly improved as, as, as has its results, reputation and all that. So there's a lot more media attention uh, yeah. given to us, you know, through hard work and results. Um, so this, this wasn't, this was before the first Olympics, but the, the situation I had was I'd be on flights and um, be talking about being on the U.S. ski team. And they're like, oh, really? You know, like, so what events do you ski, you know, like as in Alpine, you know, so you just, some of it, you'd be constantly going up against the wall and be like, I give up, you know, like, yeah, I'm you need to pretend to be an Alpine skier, but you certainly pretend to not be a Nordic skier, but that has improved through the years. And certainly that was a kind of the culmination at 2002, where the men's team did really well. We had a really solid team and it was super fun. Yeah. And um, the, um, the one, uh, Cool experience that I'll never forget was when Paul Gunnar Mikkelsboss came up and um, after one of the races and he he's like looking around, looking behind sunglasses and looking at somebody else behind sunglasses. He's like, hey, congratulations. I mean, that was like, that was more, that was like a super cool event, you know, the recognition and, and kind of where the U.S. had come to because, you know, earlier on, it was a real struggle to get the the media under, to understand what we did, you know, and what it was about. Thank you. What about you, Andy? You got any media interest anecdotes? I don't know. I mean, it's the hype. The Olympics have more, that's the only way to put it really. They have more hype than anything else. Um, and I think athletes that embrace the hype will be successful and ones that let it get to them um, will not. And I think you see obvious examples. Like I think Jesse's a great example of somebody, Jesse and Keegan, both great examples of athletes that embrace the hype. Um, and so they would go, you know, talking about going to the open ceremonies and being on your feet, like to them, just the stoke and excitement you would get from being there was worth spending 10 hours on your feet, you know, 24 hours before a race you might do. Um, and we always talk about like the pressure of the Olympics, but if you are somebody that can embrace that pressure and kind of tie that in with the media hype, um, then you'll be successful. And a lot of that means just kind of being lighthearted and having fun. Um, and for me personally, I was never, 
it was funny when I went to my first Olympics, realistically, I was probably the most competitive to win a medal. I was in a sense, a medal a favorite without anybody really knowing. Cause I was, I finished fourth in my world cup just before the Olympics, but I it didn't give enough time for the media to like, think about it really. And so I was there like a young kid, just like flying by the seat of my pants. And I didn't, the hype never really got to me, but I remember later on going into the Olympics and having NBC and stuff, try to pitch you as like a metal hopeful and all this kind of other stuff. Then you have to kind of work with the machine a little bit and, and figure out how you're going to navigate that hype. And it's something that, um, yeah, like John said, we, we receive media training, but it's nothing, you, you can't really prepare for it until you're right in it. Um, you know, and different athletes respond to it in different ways. So I had kind of a weird experience and I'm, I'm wondering if this, um, ring sounds familiar to any one of you, you know, NBC does those close up and personals. And so, uh, they came and visited me where I lived and trained to, to do this close up and personal. And so I sat down with the person who was kind of, I guess, the director or whatever and said, okay, tell us about yourself, you know, off camera, just kind of like, let's set this thing up. And so, you know, I basically told them I eat, sleep and trained, you know, I mean, <laughs> and I did live in a mountain infantry base and I did do some soldier stuff sometimes, but basically I, it's, you know, I just trained and took naps every day and, you know, the hard workouts and the whole deal. And they're like, well, um, you know, basically I was too boring. And they they were like, so it's not like we can put a, like a guitar in your hands and, and pretend that you're playing it. But this is what, that was a quote. That's what they say. It's not like we can put a guitar in your hands, and pretend you're playing. I'm like, we're not going to go that far, but is there anything else? And I'm sitting here going, man, I've never felt so boring in my life, even though, you know, I, I thought I lived a pretty cool life. And, and uh, so I was wondering if, if anyone, any of you guys had any experience like that, where they're trying to make you, it's like being a, being a high level athlete isn't enough. And, you know, giving all for your sport isn't enough. You gotta, I don't know, have something extra that has nothing to do with it, you know? Oh yeah. You got to ham it up a little bit for NBC. You know, you're not alone there uh, with the, the feeling of being slightly boring as a Nordic skier. Cause I think our live train, you know, eat, sleep, train lifestyle doesn't always translate best to screen. So you have to find different things. Yeah. That NBC will find appealing. <laughs> I gotta say, I didn't feel boring at all until that conversation. Like I brought him down to a climbing wall cause I was mountain infantry. So, you know, I was cruising on the climbing wall and they're like, you play the guitar. Like, no, like who gives a crap? I know you played it's wild how media has changed. I mean, I can remember from my first Olympics in 06 going through the media training before the games. And so we were all, you know, flying out of, you know, convened in Munich and we're about to go to the Olympic village and you have somebody from NBC come there and they're like, okay, team, there's this thing out there called Twitter. We don't want anybody tweeting from the games. Like give us your phone. We're deleting Twitter, no tweeting. Because NBC wanted to kind of lock down that content because they were afraid that was going to kind of water down their coverage if they had athletes tweeting all the time. Mm-hmm. And then sure enough, four years later in Vancouver, it was like, let's get the Twitter going, guys. Hashtag, you know, NBC will be there. It's just so funny how it evolves. And it's going to be even crazier, you know, this year, I think, with the amount of live streaming and media that will surround the games. For sure. Ida and Caitlin, did you have any kind of up close and personal, not interesting enough moments? I always feel like I, actually people were just kind of surprised and shocked with, our, with how much we do as Nordic skiers. So I think I probably maybe had more of the opposite of experience. Too. Huh. Cool. But you, Kaylin? Yeah, I, you know, again, kind of like um, 
I was pretty much under the radar. So, and maybe a last, you know, late edition. So I, I did not have any, any pressure. And I think like, kind of like Newell said, like, it was kind of nice actually kind of sit back and, and not have to, uh, not have to yeah think about it, but um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely kind of fun. I think to watch those, those stories when you get to see like, I don't know, athletes that you follow and all of a sudden they're like, I don't know, juggling and doing a tightrope and like also playing guitar and yeah, who knows what, you know, you're like, wow, that's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> so I, I admit, I kind of like those personal interest stories too, even yeah. if they're exposing for some, it's kind of fun. Okay. So here's a, here's a, um, maybe a topic that people might find interesting. And that is at the Olympics, the start positions are far more restricted than they are compared to a world cup, a strong country like Norway or Russia, We'll only have four starts per event compared to eight to 10 in a World Cup, depending on where they're, where it's located. Effectively, this makes the Olympics less competitive than a World Cup, except for that the racers who are there are generally peaking. So do you think that the Olympics are more or less competitive than a World Cup event in period one or two? Anyone have a comment on that? Opinion? I mean, I think it kind of depends on what you're considering as competitive. Um, because you might be only have able to have four from a country. So, um, perhaps getting into the cracking into the top 30 or, um, something like that wouldn't be quite as hard, but getting into the, the top 20, top 10, top five, um, is just truly impressive. And I think just talking about the, the, all the pressure and expectations and just that, that one shot experience, um, athletes that can that can put it together I think those are um truly amazing moments and it's it's a little challenging to probably compare one race to the next I mean but that's um, a great point it, it's certainly easier to get into the top 30 at the Olympics compared to a world cup a competitive time but it's much more difficult probably to get in the top 10 because of superhuman efforts and preparation and is that does that ring true to you guys yeah, I'd say, yeah, but particularly from a print, uh, sprinting perspective, I think it is easier to qualify at an Olympic Games than at a World Cup, for example, with, you know, a World Cup in Scandinavia or Russia where the, the nation's quota is so large, for example. But it doesn't make it any easier to win a medal, that's for sure. Um, and that's what makes it so special is that it's that, it's that event that comes around once every four years. Um, but kind of to touch on that point that kind of when you're comparing world cup and olympics and what's more challenging and what's more rewarding i i i think often how grateful i am to be part of a sport that doesn't just revolve around a race every four years and i can think of a, there are you know quite a few olympic winter sports that are like that but nordic skiing we're really lucky that we have a really robust world cup we have events like world championships that come around that are, you know, massive events for us. We have events like the Holman Cohen, the, the Berkey, the Norwegian Berkebiner, you know, Caitlin's a world championship medalist here. And, and I think if you talk to most athletes who are actually like on the ground athletes, they'd tell you that, you know, winning like the Birkenbeiner or being an Olympic or a world championship medalist is really on par with being a, an Olympic medalist. Like it just maybe doesn't quite have the same amount, but it's like, in my opinion, to win the Norwegian Berkey would be like winning a gold medal at the same time too. And I, I'm really grateful we have, a, we're, we're part of a sport that's like that, where we just have a lot of cool stuff to go for in our sport, not just Olympic medals. Sure. Yeah. Let's move on to the next question, which I think be a lot of uh, maybe anecdotes. Was there a way for you to support Team USA 
without compromising too much with your health and energy. Did you attend any non-ski events to support your fellow U.S. Olympians? I think uh, I'll answer that. I think that was probably one of my biggest regrets from um, from the games was that I didn't get. I I knew there were tickets available and that we could go, um, you know, to watch bobsled or we could go watch some of the alpine events. And that's something that I I wish that I had done. Like looking back, I'm kind of like, oh, that that would have been so sweet. Um, for sure, I saw like you know the the other cross country guys races. Um, and so forth. But I think just seeing like other sporting events would have been pretty sweet. So yeah, yeah. Sure. I, that's one, one, one thing I regret. Ida, did you go to any other events when you're there? And did you find um, yeah, I was able to, cause I usually, like we mentioned the 30 K and 50 K were the last events and I didn't never race in those. So I would usually have a little bit of time at the end. Um, after the races that I competed in were finished. So I think I went to a hockey game, figure skating, um, some of the like big air snowboarding um, events in Pyeongchang. Pyeongchang was a little easier than Sochi. Um, in Sochi, I was able to see some biathlon as well though, um, which was quite easy because we were at a, um, adjacent venues. But um, luckily I was able, I was able to see a bit of that, um, but it was actually almost easier to just watch it um, from the <clears throat> athlete village because there was such great coverage. We had TVs that would have a different sport on each channel. So you could just kind of flip through and see everything live or replays of it. So we watched a lot um, and it was fun to watch in the, the Team USA house um, with the other American athletes um, watching all of those events, even if you weren't watching them in, in person. Yeah, cool. What about you, I watched, I watched hockey in Nagano. We went as the men's Nordic team went uh, to the uh, women's USA women's hockey games. Had two or three of them. That was fun. Um, yeah, that was. I would have liked, you know, in, but every we were pretty spread out in, you know, in the venues. So that yeah. was a big deal. Yeah, but fun. Glad we did it. Yeah, I'm with Caitlin. I'm slightly embarrassed. I don't think I watched a single event other than a Nordic or biathlon event out over, of all my Olympics. Over four yeah. Olympic games. Yeah, not good. I'm a bad teammate for Team USA, but I would get behind them. And it's it's funny because it's it's like the particularly like when you're living in a village, it'll be like you know all the guys in one like little condo area, mm -hmm. typical like you know living in little apartments. And yeah, we get into it. You know we we'd be up for like two weeks a year all of a sudden we're like the biggest curling fans you'd ever see so we like are crowded around the tv like cheering on team usa curling and i always had a lot of connections to some of the snowboarders having grown up at stratton with sms you know i always knew one or two snowboarders um whether it was lindsey jacobellis alex diebold or louis vito some of the guys that were in the guys or girls in the half pipe or snowboard cross and so i would be glued to the tv watching like my classmates from stratton compete um and so, yeah, like Ida mentioned, we have a feed at the, it's called the live feed channels in the Olympic village. And so when you're hanging out in your room, you have a TV and you can basically click and watch any sport, even if it's like live training. So it's not even a metal event. You can click on like the snowboard half pipe channel and watch them training and then make sure you tune in in time to watch the event. And yeah, that's, yeah, it's weird to say that some of my most like go team USA camaraderie with the squad was just watching TV, but yeah, you get into it. Cool. 
Well, good. That's fun. Um, so did you all participate in the closing ceremonies? And what did you think of them? Was that, was that fun? And you got anything to say about the closing ceremonies? I like that the, I was able to go to both closing ceremonies and I really like that in the closing ceremonies, everyone walks together instead of walking in with your team. Um, the, all the Olympians from all the countries walk together. Um, and I think as Andy mentioned, this, and I only went to two Olympics, but even by my second Olympics, I was kind of seeing the, the excess of the Olympics um, and some of the the unnecessary waste um, and just the broader impact that wasn't always positive that came along with the um, Olympics. And so starting to have a little more um, awareness of that, that other side of the Olympics, but I did feel like those closing ceremonies would always be kind of a nice um, positive way to, to bring it back together in Korea. It was really special that the um, North and South Korean teams were one unified team. So they, um, they actually came in separately um, and to be there for the, the closing of the flame or um, something like that. And so it was that, that unity that you felt a little bit at the end, even after you've kind of gone through all of the, the crazy excesses that um, go along with the, with the games. Cool. Andy or John? Or uh, Andy, you want to go? Um, yeah, I'll hop in. I mean, I, I, I remember going to closing ceremonies. Um, I think I went to closing at all four of the games I went to and yeah, I remember being pretty excited for most, but at the same time, like, yeah, pretty, kind of sad and maybe emotional for my last one too just thinking that like knowing that I had come this far kind of knowing that everyone's goals are different but knowing that like maybe I didn't reach my goals like I wasn't I wasn't finishing my career with a medal around my neck and like realizing this this was probably the last time I would be at an event like this it was pretty yeah it's it's a an emotional experience would be the only way to put it yeah yeah, yeah I'd echo that Andy it's it's um you you could yeah you realize like this is where you went and this is how far um and you, you didn't get a medal but um i remember my last I, I went to all three closing ceremonies and the last one um it's like oh i just i did the best i could and i felt really satisfied um four years prior to that there was this uh they always introduced the next city uh, at the end of the games and then there was a there was a stage coach at the 1998 games and it said salt lake city 2002 and i'm like wow, I'm not going to be there. And little did I know that um, how ironic that was, because I was, and that was the best I, you know, everything came together that year. So it's just a huge emotional roller coaster. You're going through all of the, the events that occurred, all the experiences you had, you're trying to lock it into long-term memory, but it just blows your mind at how, you know, it's such a physical sport and it's such a mental sport. And, and, and I think like, mentally you or the emotions you can't get any bigger than the closing you know like if you've had fun and you have been you know haven't been sick it's it it's a huge you know experience you know you just keep with you Kaylin, you get any comment yeah i mean i think um maybe i was naive and thought i'd be at other olympic games so i don't remember the the feeling of being like oh this is it but you know looking back i mean it's still you're at the end of the of the two weeks and you're like this yeah this is this is big and i agree with ida in the sense that kind of walking with all the other um athletes from all the other delegations is 
probably one of the highlights because you kind of get to mingle quite a bit with Team USA, like Andy was saying, in various capacities, and you're kind of rooting for for yeah for your squad and then you you get to kind of like all come together from all the different sports and it's super fun and I definitely remember there being a lot of opportunities uh to kind of exchange clothes then and that was that was really really fun I thought um I still have a number of things that I thought were really cool from other teams and kind of just remind you again it's just like a neat I guess the whole concept of the Olympics a neat way to kind of end the event for me was just to kind of have that exchange and that kind of um those moments of yeah of like even like Ida said you know that that um I don't know kind of being on that journey together and kind of again coming together and kind of putting other things aside kind of that spirit of the Olympics in a lot of ways so I thought that was that was definitely one of the cooler parts of of my Olympic experience was the closing ceremonies so yeah <laughs> Thank you. I have kind of a funny memory from leaving the closing ceremonies, maybe five minutes out. You know, everyone kind of goes to parties from that point on, more or less. It's kind of like post-Olympic game party that immediately after the ceremonies. And so you're all walking in the same general direction. And I remember the people, they were all from other countries at that point who I was walking with. And most of them I never said a word to before. I didn't know them. Um, but I've never forgotten it. And I know, I remember exactly who they were in that moment. It was kind of like, where were you at that moment? Kind of a thing, you know, somehow it's an iconic moment that transcends time for me after the closing ceremonies. Okay. Well, um, obviously we have the Olympics coming up here and we're, we're very excited to watch and cheer on our, our fellow Americans as well as enjoy the Olympics in general, enjoy superb sporting performances and the spirit of the games is do any of you have any final thoughts uh, regarding the upcoming olympics and how excited you might be um i guess i could i would say particularly to you know some of the younger guys who i'm looking forward to cheering on at the olympics to just realize that even if it's your first olympics you can walk away with a medal and I think that's, I wish I would have had somebody tell me that when I was 22 years old or whatever. And I would tell them to go into the Olympics with some swagger, some confidence, really proud Team USA members, and to just go for it. Girls like Keegan, they know exactly, or girls like Jesse, they know exactly what they're doing. They're going to be crushing every race. Um, it's going to be so fun to watch Jesse um, and such a talented lady squad. Um, yeah, it's gonna be really cool, but I really want to see those young guys go in with confidence. That's what I want to see. Super. Well, um, thank you very much. You've been an awesome panel and, uh, you all are friends as well as amazing athletes that I've enjoyed, uh, over the years. Thank you so much for being with me today. I wish you a healthy and enjoyable rest of your winter and let the Olympic spirit be with us as we cheer on our amazing U S athletes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thank Thanks, everyone.